I'll be preaching this morning, uh, as we said earlier, out of Genesis chapters 46 and 47. Uh, so if you want to get a head start turning there in your Bible, um, Genesis chapters 46 and 47. I'm going to start off this morning just by reading the first four verses of, uh, of our text this morning. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, we do worship you this morning. As, as our songs have, have sung, as our hearts have proclaimed, you are the Lord most high. You are a good and great Savior. Uh, Lord, we praise you for, for milestones which we, uh, we recognize. For those who have graduated from school, Lord, we, we pray for them in their future endeavors. For, for Maddie, as she begins her life as a, as a baptized follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray for her and, and her growth in, in holiness. And we pray, Lord, uh, for, for all of us now as we look to your word and, and seek to, to grow in our knowledge and our love uh, of you uh, as you minister to us through your word by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So most people, I, I don't feel like I'm over speaking here, most people know the frustration, discomfort, and anxiety of having something unexpected come up in your life, which changes your plans. Uh, it, it might be something major, like a global pandemic that shuts down major parts of the economy and society and uh, leads to, to job loss, if not for yourself, but for people who are near to you. Life loss, uh, separation of family, relocation. The three-year vision of, of most, if not all people, uh, um, was not in January of 2020, um, including the things that have happened over the last 18 months. But even small changes, right? Even small changes can, can be hard. Uh, some people are, are wired for making small adjustments, quick adjustments. Um, some people had, have had to learn how to make adjustments on the fly as they go. Um, but, but a lot of people still have a hard time letting go of uh, the way they thought uh, should things or things should pan out, um, and especially when those changes have ripple effects when they and they branch out to other other things, right? Uh, for instance, uh, there's an accident in the tunnel on your way to work, and you are stuck in traffic for an hour, which causes you to miss a meeting with an important client, which leads to decisions being made that you weren't a part of, which leads to your family vacation having to be replanned. And those frustrations, while some of them are minor, they can ripple out and, and become something major and create some serious anxiety. 
Poet Robert Burns famously penned, the best laid schemes of mice and men often go awry and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. I think that rhymed if you have a Scottish accent. We come this morning to the 46th and the 47th chapters of Genesis where we see the aging and aged patriarch Jacob wrestling as he so often does between two seemingly contradictory plans. His desire to be reunited with his son Joseph whom he only recently had found out was still in fact alive and uh, a desire to keep his family alive. Uh, for this famine is great in the land of Canaan and, uh, and the, the people were unsecure and, and needed food. Jacob, the schemer, had spent his entire tumultuous life working to secure himself in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, the God of his fathers had given, given it to him decades before, and he had raised his children there. Uh, God had even uh, given him grandchildren born there in the land of Canaan. Uh, but now a famine in the land and, and the conflicting desires of his heart are proving to him that he must immigrate. It's time to go to Egypt, a land where God had once forbidden his father Isaac to, to go. he will once again be a sojourner in a land not his own, under a pagan ruler who does not know or worship God. He's already strapped for resources to feed his people, and he's losing security in his own land. And so now Jacob has to wonder how the blessing bestowed on him by his father Isaac from way back in Genesis chapter 27, how that's going to prevail in Egypt. Will God still give him the fatness of the earth? Will people still serve him and nations bow down to him? How faithful is God? Is there a limit to how far God will go to do what he has promised to do? Moses wrote these chapters in, in Genesis um, to a sojourning Israel 450 years later. And indeed, he writes to us because we, we too recognize that our, our stuff, our, our property, our world, our leaders, they cannot be relied upon to provide the life and the security and the blessings that we need either in this life or, or, nor in eternity. And so we too, like Jacob, must learn that trusting in the Lord cannot just be a a theoretical sentiment that we post on social media, but trusting in the Lord is the, the bedrock upon which we stand while we await the fulfillment of God's promises. And so that brings us back to our text. Last week, the scriptures ended with a dramatic and abrupt conclusion. In four verses, that's, that's chapter 45, verses 28 through, or 25 through 28, Joseph's brothers get home, inform their father that, their long, the, that his long dead favorite son is actually not dead. They confess their, their, their sins, everything that they've kept hidden from him for decades, and they informed him of Joseph's position in Egypt and his invitation uh, to the entire household of Israel to come to Goshen where he would provide for them. If that sounded like a lot, think about how much it would have sounded to, to Jacob. 
All of these changes have happened very rapidly in Jacob's life. And so here in verse one of chapter 46, Jacob's already packed everything. I mean, it, that, was not a, that was not a long turnaround, right? He's packed everything and everyone and they've started the journey. But before leaving Canaan, Israel makes a pit stop in Beersheba in order to make sacrifices to God. This is more important than it may seem. All acts of, of faithful devotion to God are, are important. All of our praises are, are important. But Beersheba was significant because it was there that Abraham had built an altar and planted a tree and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. We can read about that in Genesis chapter 21. Later, Isaac rebuilt that altar and dug a well in Beersheba in Genesis chapter 26. In both of these accounts, the patriarchs understand that they're declaring this land to be their own, if only partially, because it was promised by God. They made oaths with other nations, meaning that Beersheba was recognized as a boundary marker for the land of Abraham's descendants. Beersheba is the last stop before entering into the desert wilderness. And before taking that next step out of the promised land, Jacob stops to worship the God of his father, Isaac. The God who had given Jacob everything he owns. Jacob shows humble gratitude and recognition of God's grace to him in his land. And next, we read that God speaks to Israel in visions in the night. This language mirrors God's dialogue with Abraham on Mount Moriah. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. See, but then God stopped the slaying of Abraham's promised son, the seed of promise that he had been willing to give up at the Lord's command. But here in, in, in chapter 46, the Lord doesn't stop the 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 difficult decision, the, ter the, the hard move. The Lord reassures Jacob that he can give up the land of promise. Both men show willingness to sacrifice an essential element of God's covenant promise out of faith that God can make all things work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.28. God reaffirms his promise to Jacob. I am your father's God. I will make you into a great nation. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will bring you up again. So Jacob's no stranger to, to night visions from, from God, right? He has heard God's promises before and witnessed God's um, bringing them out, working them out into completion. But this time he knows that the fulfillment of the promise won't happen until after he's died. He'll see Joseph again, but his body will expire away from Canaan. Let's move forward in our, in our text. Verses five through seven say, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters and all his offspring he brought with him into 
Egypt. As they leave Beersheba, heading south for Egypt, the, the once spry Jacob has to be carried on a cart by his sons. He's limped every day since his cage match with the Lord. And now at the ripe old age of 130, he is too frail to walk. The family brings all they own, ignoring the words of Pharaoh in, in Genesis 45, 20, when he said, leave your stuff and come, I'll provide for you. The best of Egypt may be theirs, but the goods from home come down too. Israel isn't wintering in Egypt. They're migrating there. Each son and daughter, wife and servant, grandchild and, and, and animal is leaving the, famished, or the famined promised land in search of a place where they can live and flourish. The next section I'm going to spare you from reading is a genealogy. Uh, verses 8 through 27 give us a genealogy. They share the names of all of the household of Jacob that leaves from Canaan and, and onto the journey, into the journey, into the wilderness, and ultimately to Egypt. It describes the entire household of, of Israel. The sons are listed together by each of their mothers along with their wives and children. We get small reminders of the stories that we've heard preached throughout the, the book of Genesis, throughout the story of, of Jacob. We, we, it, names are, are unfolded and revealed until there are 70 names, 70 people uh, of the household that, uh, that are revealed to us. This appears to be a throwback to Genesis chapter 10, where we're given the first 70 nations which go forth after the, the flood of Noah's times. If, if you remember, after Noah uh, and, uh, came off of the ark, he and, and his, his wife and his sons and their wives, they all had children, and, and 70 nations are ultimately birthed from, uh, from Noah's line. And so here we see another group of 70 going into a place of refuge for a time and they will be, uh, and, and they will, from there, that God will make, create his family. It, it seems like Moses is hinting to us that Israel represents the family of man in, in kind of in a microcosm. God has not flooded the earth, but a famine has ruined the land. Uh, but God remembers his people. He always has. He always does. God remembers his promise. And while the people have done nothing to merit deliverance, the Lord has provided a means for the people to be delivered from disaster. Egypt is like an, another ark, a refuge from, for God's chosen people until they will once again be sent forth to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The next verse after the, uh, after the, the genealogy, verse 28 if I can find it. Oh, I went wrong chapter. Genesis 46, uh, verse 28 says, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. So we can continue to see the rise of Judah in prominence as the spokesman for Jacob's household. He was the first to become convicted of sin and to bear the fruit of humble repentance. 
Judah was instrumental in reuniting Jacob and Joseph. This is both ironic and redemptive because if you remember, Judah is the one who had played the chief role in Joseph being sold into slavery in the first place. Judah now is the mediator. He leads the family to Goshen and goes on to bring Joseph there to Jacob. This reminds us of how God's grace towards sinners is, is not merely, as, as if merely is the right word, he doesn't just forgive our sins, but he even allows us to play an important role in his plans for reconciliation with the rest of the world. Verses 29 through 30 says, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Finally, we come to the long-awaited reconciliation, the long-awaited long long reunion of Jacob and his favorite son, Joseph. There's no record of any words exchanged between father and son. Just a whole lot of weeping, a whole lot of hugging, a whole lot of squeezing necks, right? This tender image of, of this reunion transcends all cultures on earth. No one reads this and is surprised by the messy, sappy emotion of this moment, this raw moment between a father and a son. The reuniting of, of estranged and, and separated family members is a glorious thing. It's the image that Jesus draws on uh, when, when he tells the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where Jesus is explaining God's own joy in heaven at the recovery of one repentant sinner. Our sins have separated us from fellowship with God, but God looks upon sinners with compassion and he rejoices at our reunion. This is beautiful. This image of Jacob and Joseph is a sketch of the gospel. Let us also rejoice and embrace our loving father who graciously crosses deserts and endures famines of righteousness in order to reconcile himself by, to us by his son. And this could easily be the end of the story. This could be the end of the, of the saga of Jacob and Joseph, right? For weeks, we've traced this, this saga of Joseph's separation from his father. He's, he's endured so many hardships. Jacob has suffered so many sorrows. But now, they're together again. If this was a movie, right, this would be like the, the, the reveal, right? Joseph's reveal in chapter 45 to his brothers, right? That would be the climax uh, the, the trip to Egypt would be like the denouement. I, I had to look up that French word, the denouement. And then uh, this, there would be the dramatic conclusion, right? The big hug, you know, crying on each other's necks. There's booming orchestra music and then roll credits, right? But this isn't a movie. Genesis isn't a movie. It's, it's more like the conclusion of an epic novel, Right, which has about 80 more pages of epilogue after you hit the conclusion. Because Genesis isn't about Joseph and Jacob. It's not about their relationship. It's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not about 
reconciling Israel. The book of Genesis, as we've talked about for a year, is about God's promise to God's people to address the problem of all of our separation from God because of sin. So it's, a, it's beautiful that Jacob and Joseph are reunited and we, we can appreciate what that reveals to us about the gospel, but we still have to see whether God's promise will in fact uh, come to completion for God's people. Will Israel become a great nation? Will they inherit Canaan? Will they indeed be a blessing to all the world? Let's keep reading. Verses 31 through 40. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls to you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph lays out a plan for his family's provision. After years in the land, Joseph knows the Egyptians. He knows their culture. He also knows his own family. Joseph knows how to speak to Pharaoh in order to get things done. And he knows that everyone wants Egypt's help right now. The famine in the land is described in the word as severe. The family of Israel has brought all their livestock with them, cattle, goats, sheep, and they've come to Goshen, which appears to be the best of the land, even amidst this famine. But if they're to stay there, they're going to need Pharaoh's express permission So Joseph coaches them. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks you, what is your occupation? This is what you will say. He tells them to be humble, right? Refer to yourself, yourselves as his servants. He tells them to call themselves keepers of livestock. The Egyptians, for whatever reason, have some kind of aversion to shepherds. There's no historical explanation as to why. Uh, why they have this disdain, but it's possible that many of the Bedouin peoples that surrounded Egypt might have made themselves unwelcome, especially during a time of famine. And so the shepherd label carried some negative connotations among the Egyptians. Whatever the reason, the Egyptians were established workers of the land. They were farmers. This tension between farmers and shepherds can be traced back to Cain and Abel. It may be that Moses is making the point that there's some level of ongoing subconscious division between the seed of Abraham and the seed of the serpent represented in Egypt. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, Genesis chapter 47, verses one through six. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And he said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. 
They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Joseph's plan works. His chief concern has been to secure his family's position in Egypt. And after, moving, or after meeting with Pharaoh, the brothers have found favor in the eyes of the ruler. It's worthy of noting that they didn't exactly follow Joseph's directions really well, did they? They say a whole lot more than he had coached them to say. Kind of come across as begging a little bit. And, and they even referred them to themselves as shepherds, even though Joseph had, had explicitly told them to call themselves keepers of livestock. But Pharaoh is pleased, not just to let them stay in Egypt, but he even gives them the land of Goshen, which he admits is the best of the land to dwell in. It's the good land in those parts. Goshen was already used for, for pasture lands. As, as we read that Pharaoh's own livestock were already there. God, as the ruler over the hearts of men, has given Israel favor with Joseph. We've seen this pattern before with, Joseph, with Pharaoh and, and Abraham. Well, there's no reason for the, these two Pharaohs to show such hospita hospitality toward this family of, of immigrants. But this is the heart of God being led by the, sorry, this is the heart of Pharaoh being led by the hand of God. What's more, Pharaoh is, is inviting them to put their skilled workers over his own herds and flocks too. In Goshen, Israel will have access uh, to, to um, the best of the land. They will not be bothered by the Egyptians who hold shepherds in contempt. And because of that, uh, that's a, a lowered risk of intermarriage with pagan peoples. And what we're seeing God do in Israel is to give them an opportunity to flourish, even in Egypt. And, and through hindsight of the rest of the Bible, we know that Israel in, is indeed fruitful. And they multiply greatly in the land. The promise of God to Jacob before he left Beersheba is already playing out before us. God is faithful. Jacob, you can trust me. Moving on to verses 7 through 12. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh blessed, excuse me, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the, year, of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the, the, in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then 
Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their descendants, dependents, rather. The leaders meet. The conversation becomes less formal. Rather than the diplomatic conversation that, that happens between Joseph's brothers and Pharaoh, the ruler speaks with Jacob with far more familiarity, almost like an old friend. Pharaoh respectfully asks Jacob his age, and, and Jacob responds with transparency and, and, and a little bit of depression, right? My years have been few and evil. Jacob's been through the ringer, right? I mean, he's, he's had a rough go. A lot of it's his own fault, but he's had a rough life. He was on the run from his brother for years. He sat under the oppressive household of Laban, knowing he had a promise to take hold of, but being exiled. His beloved wife, Rachel, died in childbirth. He thought he'd lost a son and found out like recently, that his 10 oldest sons had sold him and lied about it for years. Jacob had a daughter who was raped. He had sons who had responded to injustice with further injustice and even committing genocidal violence against people that were supposed to be their neighbors in the land. And he'd even had an all-night royal rumble with the Almighty. His sons had to carry his frail body through the desert on a wagon to get to Egypt from a land that he thought he was supposed to inherit. And he had schemed for years to do so. So it makes sense that Jacob would respond to Pharaoh like a Tom Waits song. I'm old. I'm tired. But bedraggled as he was, Jacob is also the patriarch over the house of God, the household of, of God, over his chosen people, right? And so as such, he has the authority even to bless a Pharaoh. And this again is a sign that God's covenant promises have carried forward for his people even outside of the promised land. In Genesis chapter 12, verse three, God had declared to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's people are in a special position to bless the people of this world in a way that only comes through his grace. We bless when we're cursed. We pray for others even when we are miserable. We proclaim good news even when life has frustrated and discouraged us. Are you tempted to get selfish when you're exhausted or in pain? If you say no, you're a liar and you need to repent. I find, though, that it, it is in the midst of those times when I'm most spiritually needy that God uses me to bless someone. Sometimes that brings me enough of a perk to get over what's bothering me. Other times it doesn't. But the reality is that there is an abiding joy even in the midst of sorrow and depression and grief and exhaustion that, that comes from serving God and serving others. First, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Certainly, it helps to bless one another within the, the household of faith. But also, 
those lost neighbors that I meet, those people, those people at the mall or at, the, at, at Walmart or at the park. Don't let your misery lead you to forget your privilege as a Christian to bless the nations, right? We see, we see in Jacob here what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 6.10 um, as being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Genesis 47, verses 13 through 26. Now there was no food in all the land. The famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give me your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight, excuse me, of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? By us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for, the Pharaoh, for Pharaoh and for all the Egyptians sold their, food, their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now that long section, I read that because it's important. The, the famine has left Egypt desolate. It's already been two years of a, of a food shortage in the land and there are yet five more years according to the vision that God had given Pharaoh previously in our story. Joseph had shrewdly prepared Egypt for the crisis, but that doesn't change the fact that the crisis was devastating. We read that the people had already spent all of their money. All the silver is in the treasury of Pharaoh. And when the people return the following year, Joseph works out a deal with them. He'll, 
He'll take livestock in the place of silver for the people to buy grain for themselves. But when that grain is gone, the famine is only halfway over. The people are destitute. They have mouths to feed, fields to plant, and no money or livestock to trade. So the people propose a plan to Joseph. If Joseph will give them grain, they will sign over their land to Pharaoh and become servants of Pharaoh on their own lands. We would call this system serfdom. It's similar to to what we saw in Europe a few centuries ago. Joseph complies, and the people are supplied with food. Joseph allows them to live on the land that they sold and work it. This arrangement, uh, the arrangement is that they have to give to the Pharaoh one-fifth, 20% of their produce, and Egypt will make sure they don't starve. Notice the response of the Egyptians in verse 25. This plan pleases them. They rejoice. You have saved us, Joseph. This passage of scripture has often been used as a a defense of communism or as a defense of slavery. People have tried to use this story to to either attack Christianity or attack the word of God um, on both of those fronts. But this is not what we're seeing here. There's no forcible seizure of land, right? The people voluntarily enter into this agreement and they see it as an act of mercy from Joseph to accept these terms. They aren't being given an allowance by the government. They're working that they may eat. And the point of this part of the story is is not to tell us about how a land should be governed. The point of this part of the story is that God has blessed the nations specifically Egypt, through the seed of Abraham. Without Joseph, all of these people would have starved to death. God has provided a wise and kind and merciful leader to save life. Salvation doesn't come from Pharaoh. It doesn't even come from their hard work. It doesn't come from their savings and possessions, all of that dwindled in the face of disaster. Their salvation comes from the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, Jacob's family, and so does ours. Your works, your stuff, your rulers of any political system on earth cannot ultimately save you. You can make wise choices that may result in some temporal security but they cannot guarantee your life or your security or your provision. Every good and perfect gift, writes James, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We cannot forget that. And we must always give glory where it's due. God saved Egypt in his mercy. And he saves you, likewise, in his mercy. Praise God. He even saves Gentiles. Pharaoh had blessed Israel with the land of Goshen. He had blessed them by allowing them a place to stay in the midst of a famine. God had, and, and God continues to prove his covenant faithfulness to Jacob. Remember, he says, I will bless those who bless you. Egypt is being blessed by Jacob, 
and they're being blessed because of Jacob. But take notice, while Egypt languishes in their own land and relies on the seed of Abraham to save their lives after becoming destitute, we read of the covenant family of Israel flourishing in Goshen. Verse 27 So thus Israel settled in the land of of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. The famine leaves the people of Egypt with nothing of their own, but here in Goshen, a nation of immigrants gain possessions. Egypt, Egyptians are devastated. Israel is fruitful and multiply greatly. Indeed, just as the God of his father Isaac had promised Jacob as he left his homeland, Israel is becoming a great and powerful nation, a nation so great that we can already begin to see the setup for the book of Exodus, where we read in Exodus 1.9 that the new king of Egypt said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And oppression begins will once again see God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to bring his people back to their own land. And it is, it is the concern for this that leads to our next section in, in Genesis 47, verses 28 through 31. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in in, in their place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Jacob is about to die. Now, we don't really know how close to death he is here. Next week, we'll see Jacob's final blessings over his family in a section that starts after all this, which could mean some time later. And then even after that, there could be some time that passes before the actual death of Jacob. But Genesis 47 tells us that the time is drawing near. Jacob has been a touch on the morbid side for decades. He talks an awful lot about his death. But this is different. Now it's not so much him talking about the end being near, but but the narrator. As Jacob's death draws close, he wants to make sure that his last will and testament is in order. He wants to be buried with his fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, in the land of Canaan. Egypt was supposed to be for Israel what the ark was for Noah. It was a temporary refuge from a disaster outside, not a permanent residence for the people of God. After years of strife and years of trust issues, Jacob finally believes God. The Lord has promised Israel not just the best of of Egypt, but the promised land in Canaan. The homeland is a sign of God's covenant with his people. It will be the epicenter of God's ultimate redemption of the world, and Jacob wants to be there, even if, if it's just his bones. He asks Joseph to swear an oath to him. When Jacob was younger, 
He deceived his, his own frail and blind father Isaac with a, in a solemn moment like this. But now Jacob can only hope and trust that his beloved son will carry out his final request. Jacob doesn't want an extravagant Egyptian tomb. He doesn't want a pyramid. I would want a pyramid. He, he doesn't want to be buried with earthly treasures for Indiana Jones to unearth a few millennia later. He wants to be buried in the true good land. The land of God's promise. Jacob knows, and we should take note, that, that he can't seek his fulfillment. He shouldn't seek his fulfillment in the world because our treasure is in the promise of God. If we are in Christ, our treasure is in heaven, our promised land, our happy home. So what? Will I trust in the Lord to save and sustain me, even if it means giving up on other sources of security? Abraham took his own son, whom he had been promised, given and whom he loved, up a mountain, obediently setting himself to sacrifice Isaac on an altar at the Lord's command. Jacob left Canaan, which he had been promised and given, and which he loved, and took the entirety of his family to the land of Egypt. This was not how either of them had planned for their lives to work out. These did not seem like strategic moves to see the, the promise of God fulfilled, and yet they trusted in God and obeyed because they knew that God is faithful. He will save to the uttermost. God will sustain our lives. What are you trusting for your life and security? That God may be calling you to set aside trusting him to care for you. That thing, that person, that system cannot save you. Don't let what you love in this world hold you back from what God is calling you to. Trust in him and let go. Number two, like Jacob, we cling to and we rest in the promise of God to do all that he has said he will do, for he is faithful. This morning we saw that both Jacob and the Egyptian people had to learn that our stuff, our world, our leaders cannot be relied upon to provide the life and security and blessings we need in this life nor in eternity. So, quit seeking to find your life in those things. Our salvation, our security, our redemption, our blessing is only found in the seed of Abraham. Joseph, here partially in Genesis, establishes a secure place for the family of Israel in the good land of Goshen. He even protects the lives of the nations, including Egypt, as a blessing to the world. But Jesus Christ saves fully as the true better seed of Adam, the son of man, the mediator of, and, and the Lord who sits not at the right hand of Pharaoh, but at the right hand of the father himself. Salvation's not even found in the promised land of Canaan. It's not in the reconciliation of the sons of Jacob. It's not in the political powers of Egypt. Our salvation comes from the gracious provision of the Lord our God through his promised seed. Jesus Christ, his son. Will you trust in the promised seed of Abraham? Will you trust in that seed of Joseph, seed of Jacob? The son of God left paradise and entered into the spiritual famine 
of our sin-broken world. As a child, he escaped the wrath of a murderous king by finding temporary refuge in Egypt, being bought, brought by another Joseph, his own earthly father. Christ lived in perfect obedience to, to and faith in God and had favor and eternal rewards and even eternal life stored up for him. All things are from him, through him, and to him, and yet he laid it all down to take the wages of our sin, of your sin, upon him and died on a cross and on the third day rose again in exchange he exchanged his his favor rewards and life for our condemnation if you will turn in faith to the seed of abraham the new and better joseph jesus christ life and freedom and the promise of an eternal home are yours Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your blessing. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your son, for, for making a way even in the midst of a broken and, and spiritually famished world. We, we are all guilty, Lord, of, of wondering if you are, of doubting your faithfulness from time to time, Lord, wondering if you can bring to completion those things that you've You've promised that you would. We're, we're guilty even more, Lord, of looking to things of this world, schemes of our own minds and, and, and resources that we can gain for ourselves in order to bring us security and life. Ultimately, Lord, we know nothing, nothing that we have um, can, can sustain us if it's not from you. Lord, we pray now that you would bless us, grow our faith, um, make us alive in Christ. And help us to be like Jacob was, a blessing to the nations. For your glory, for your namesake. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.